From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hello, radio friends and family. Welcome aboard The Conspiracy Show. It's, uh, we're nicely into the Christmas season, so, uh, you know, it, it, what happens during the Christmas season, of course, people flying off in all uh, directions, madly off in all directions. Tim, I know you're going to Japan. You're flying to Japan, my producer on the other side of the glass, uh, to spend some uh, some time with your girlfriend's family. And I'm off to, uh, to L.A. next Sunday, uh, working uh, steadily still on Season 3 of the Conspiracy Show television program. We'll have an announcement soon when that's finally going to air. It's been kind of a long gestation period, but it's going to be worth it. We've got some great episodes for you, uh, for you uh, fans of the television program. And uh, then the following week, uh, in a couple of weeks, my old producer, my very first producer here at AM740, where we do the uh, our sort of our uh, our flagship station here in uh, Toronto, Dan Ellison is coming back. Uh, that was like three producers ago. Tim, you're my fourth producer in just over three years. <laughs> anyway. Uh, people coming and going, but uh, great to have you aboard. And I don't know if it's snowing where you are, if you're in the Christmas mood, but uh, nevertheless, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and all the best of the holiday season. Uh, you know, we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk the paranormal over the next hour, but we're gonna sort of cover off both ends of the spectrum a little bit later. Uh, my good friend Bob Curran uh, from uh, Northern Ireland will drop by to talk about. American vampires. <laughs> What's Christmas without vampires, Tim? I mean, seriously. American vampires, though, as opposed to their um, Eastern European sort of uh, uh, nobility um, uh, cousins. They're always, you know, counts and barons over in uh, in uh, Romania. But when you get to the uh, get to the states, they're just angst-ridden teens. That's the type of garden variety vampire you have over here. Anyway, my next guest, or my first guest, actually, no stranger to uh, the vampire beat, but tonight we're going to cover off something a little more in tune with the Christmas season. We're going to talk angels, and she's written a major tome on this subject, uh, the Encyclopedia of Angels, which is, I'm not sure how many printings it's uh, into now, uh, probably a half dozen or so, we'll find out. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator extraordinaire, joins me the second Sunday of every month, and she's here now to talk angels. Rosemary, how are you? Hello, Richard. I'm doing quite well, and I just have to chuckle at uh, having vampires and angels on one of your Christmas programs. I guess, uh, you know, after you've suffered the vampires, you can call on the angels for help. That's right. Well, listen, you know, when you mentioned to me uh, uh, earlier in the week that you wanted to talk about angels, I pulled off uh, the shelf your Encyclopedia of Angels. I have your second edition. And um, uh, how did you get interested in angels, first of all? Angels were actually one of the first kinds of paranormal experiences I had when I was a kid. And uh, I often felt surrounded by angels when I played or uh, when I was going to sleep at night. And I knew they had wings and they could sing very prettily and I could hear them sing. And I thought everybody experienced angels. Uh, But children often have uh, a lot of experiences that they they think happen to everyone, and when they get older, they discover that um, uh, they're rather unique. Uh, and, of course, as a lot of people get older, the experiences they had as a kid sort of fade away. 
for mine, uh, for me rather, I was very intrigued by the paranormal. I loved the mystery of the unknown and the unseen. And as I got older, I really wanted to um, find out more about angels and who who are they really, and and do they really um, appear to children? Uh, do they really help people solve their problems and crises? Uh, deliver messages from God, uh, and they are real. I I've had many angel experiences since then. It's interesting though, Rosemary, because as you describe. In uh, the introduction to your your encyclopedia of angels, you growing up you had no particular religious upbringing, no indoctrination, and so it's you know for for someone like yourself to have an encounter with angels, rather interesting. You know they're deeply ingrained in our culture, and uh, of course when I was a kid at Christmas time, uh, I loved all the trappings of Christmas, and you get out the decorations with the angels and. You sing Christmas carols uh, about angels, so they're they're part of life. And um, uh, it's true, I didn't have any strong religious um, training. Uh, I was raised a Methodist, and my parents sent me to Sunday school. And, Same here, uh, Methodist United Church, we called it up there. <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's uh, I think it's a good background to have because. Um, it enabled me to feel free to explore. I didn't have a lot of um, strong um, education about, uh, you know, beliefs that uh, were and were not possible. And uh, Methodism enabled me to expand quite a bit. And and I ultimately felt that Christianity could not answer all of my spiritual questions and needs. In fact, there really wasn't any faith on the planet that I thought. Uh, provided adequate answers to everything for everyone. And what, what, did these encounters with angels continue throughout your life? Do you continue to see angels? Uh, yes. And in fact, the more, uh, after I got older and I really started pursuing my studies on the paranormal uh, as a young adult, the more I went into all aspects of the paranormal, the more experiences I had. I was very open and I also. Uh, took a lot of training and how to develop my psychic abilities as well. And I think when you focus your attention on, on something like this, it attracts to you uh, those very things. So my inquiries about angels and my desire to know them and know more about them literally brought more angels into my life. And and what did they look like? When what I mean, you mentioned that they you know they they had wings and they had beautiful voices. Were they male, female? Were they androgynous? What were, were what did they look like? The experiences that I had when I got older, none of them have had wings. And in fact, most of the people I've interviewed uh, about their experiences, the angels are more like pillars of light. And that's how I experience them, whether I sense them uh, and could see them with the inner eye or whether I had visual experiences. Um, it's a very intense light. And when I've seen them visually, the light is so bright that I can't even look at it directly. You have to avert your your eye uh, and sort of see them out, out of your peripheral vision um, and um, uh, even though it did not have a human shape um, I knew they were angels and people know that that they know that this is some sort of divine being uh, and if it communicates telepathically um, you know they will they will announce themselves 
They will give a name, and you know that they are angels and why they are making themselves present. Well, our biblical ancestors had a much different uh, attitude toward angels. They were definitely God's messengers and would take prayers to God and bring the answers back. But they were also God's disciplinarians. Yes, people. I mean, they were. They, people were in fear. I mean, if oh, an angel, you, an angel appeared before you, and you trembled. Absolutely, because uh, you just felt that well, God's unhappy with me, and now He sent uh, an angel to take me to task. Uh, and today, uh, we have a much different attitude. If an angel appears, it's a good thing. It's uh, it's help. Angels are very important uh, to our spiritual understanding. They really help connect us to the divine, which is very abstract and in many respects unknowable. But angels, who we consider to be in our likeness or similar to us, uh, we can relate to them. And uh, so they are a way for us to, to know the divine better. And every culture has them, they, whether they're called angels, which are unique to the um, Judeo-Christian and, and Islamic faiths. They're called something else, you know, another name in, in uh, other traditions. But their function remains the same. And is there a hierarchy, uh, as was, was sort of explained to me in my during my uh, catechism, uh, into the Orthodox faith? Is there like, you know, you have the seraphim and, and um, different levels of angels? I do believe there is, and in fact, we've always experienced angels that way. Uh, the ancients considered the earth to be a microcosm of the macrocosm, so things uh, things in heaven are mirrored on on earth, and what goes on on earth is mirrored in heaven. Uh, so if we have hierarchies and organizations and governments and that sort of thing on earth, uh, we've always expected the heavenly realms, the cosmos, to be organized the same way. Now, the nine-tier system that most people are familiar with, the, the angels, the archangels, the powers, virtues, and, and so on, uh, that's only one of many systems. There have been other hierarchies uh, that were conceived uh, even in ancient times, and uh, they were the product of visionary experiences. So ultimately, do we know which hierarchy is the right one, so to speak? They're probably all right in some way because they are the product of, of visionary experiences and our attempts as human beings to uh, organize our experiences and make sense of them. But bottom line is, yes, there does seem to be differentiations in the angels and um, their interests in the earth and the things that they are concerned with. The beings that we consider to be so very powerful, the angels themselves, are actually at uh, the lowest level of the tier. And the ones at the highest level, and actually it makes quite a bit of sense, are very close to God, and their purpose is oriented toward um, uh, singing the praises of God, holding the cosmic energy together through divine love. Do you think there's a connection? with things on a much higher sphere. Sure. Is there a connection? Well, I, I want to ask you about it, if there's a possible connection between the UFO phenomena and angels, because, um, you know, some people have, uh, who've had an encounter with uh, ETs or, or UFOs, seem to be describing, um, in my mind anyway, uh, you know, they describe these Nordic-looking, um, almost human-type uh, figures. To me, these sound like angels. What do you think? 
there's quite a bit of similarity. And, in fact, I think this shows our attempts at labeling um, perhaps even the same kind of experience. You know, we have these extraordinary experiences with beings that are quite real and very profound, and then we have to make sense out of them. So we do it the best way we can according to our time and place and culture. But a few years ago, I actually did an informal but very interesting experiment with a psychologist friend of mine. Uh, We were both officers in the International Association for the Study of Dreams. And uh, I had noticed in the dream literature um, descriptions of both ETs and angels that sounded the same. So how how would you know whether you were having an encounter with ETs or with angels? So I did a deeper study on it from from extending beyond dreams into the encounter literature in general. And uh, I found that if if you took out the labels, ET or angel, and you asked people to identify the kind of being somebody was having a dream about or an experience with, um, you got both answers. That, uh, you know, people evaluated what they were reading uh, against their what they were familiar with. Right, superimposing and, uh, their own... So uh... one could be transposed over the other. So how how do you make uh, some sort of sense of that? It certainly doesn't negate either one, e- either ETs or angels, uh, just that there are beings um, that we come into contact with who have um, forms of light or are very bright, uh, humanoid but very bright, and they come uh, in mysterious ways and for the purpose of helping people. Uh, so... I think we have a lot of extraordinary assistance out there, however it comes and however we label it. They certainly would all be considered part of God's plan. And, of course, uh, at Christmas time, uh, we like to think that we're um, sort of in closer connection with, uh, with angels. And, and uh, who, whoever's out there listening, uh, I, I hope and pray that you will, uh, you'll uh, be speaking with your angel over this uh, Christmas, blessed Christmas season and uh, Hanukkah season. Rosemary, always a pleasure. And uh, the Encyclopedia of Angels, available to uh, book buyers at Amazon and uh, good bookstores everywhere. And my website, visionaryliving.com, has some articles about angels as well. Excellent. Well, we'll direct people there. Merry Christmas, Rosemary. Merry Christmas to you too, Richard. Look forward to seeing you again in the new year. Absolutely. Looking forward to it as well. All right, back with uh, American Vampires, their true bloody history from New York to California when The Conspiracy Show continues. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. And as I said uh, before the break, we're moving from angels to vampires, complete opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, But, uh, and what better time to talk about vampires than Christmas, am I right? Well, perhaps not. But, uh, you know, there's no accounting for the timing in the uh, the book publishing industry. However, delighted to to have uh, Dr. Bob Curran on the program live from County Down in Northern Ireland. Well, versed in the legend of the vampire. Uh, he, uh, After leaving school at 14, he worked in a number of jobs, including 
uh, a, a grave digger, uh, which perhaps uh, led uh, him in his uh, led him to his uh, current literary career. Uh, aside from digging graves, he worked as a lorry driver, a professional musician, a journalist, even wrote for uh, stand-up comedians. Traveled extensively. Uh, later, went to the university. Uh, um, uh, went to university, rather, where he obtained a degree in education, history, uh, and uh, still teaches um, now and again. But his uh, impressive list of books, uh, my gosh, it goes on and on and on here. But uh, a couple of the uh, the more popular titles, Bloody Irish, Great Irish Vampire Stories, The Truth About the Leprechaun, Celtic Lore and Legend, Meet the Gods, Heroes, Kings, Fairies, Monsters, and Ghosts of Yore, Vampires, again, a field guide to the creatures that stalk the night. Encyclopedia of the Undead, a field guide to creatures that cannot rest in peace. And uh, Zombies, a field guide to the Walking Dead. And his latest, as I mentioned, is entitled American Vampires. Their bloody, true history from New York to California. Dr. Bob Curran. Dr. Bob Curran, how are you, my friend? How are you, Richard? How are things in Toronto? Uh, as I was saying earlier, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we don't traditionally associate uh, the holiday season with vampires. Nevertheless, you've written this beautiful uh, tome, a uh, blood-splattered uh, epic here entitled American Vampires, Their True Bloody History from New York to California, which is interesting that you're bringing it to the Western, uh, to the New World, because we associate vampires traditionally, you know, going back to Bram Stoker and so forth, with Eastern European noblemen in black capes and and so and so forth. So, why did you decide to, f- to focus on North the North American uh, species, if I can use that term? <laughs> okay, Richard, you have touched uh, slightly on the reasons why, because we begin to think of vampires as, as you say, uh, noblemen in black capes and with pale faces somewhere in Eastern Europe, or angst-ridden teenagers uh, somewhere in uh, Middle America. But what I wanted to do was begin to look at the cultural background to some of the vampires. Uh, not all vampires are, are, are noblemen, and not all vampires are young, angst-ridden teenagers. So what I wanted to do was look at uh, vampire, a wide spectrum of vampires, because vampires come in all shapes and sizes, depending on the culture in which they originate. And where better than where many cultures have fused together? Uh, you have Native American, you have uh, Scots-Irish, uh, you have uh, Creole, you have French, you have Dutch, all Italian, all coming together in a sort of uh, rich uh, cultural stew, if I can use that phrase. And where better to do that than in America? So what I wanted to look at was uh, how vampires are different in various parts of America and look at the wide spectrum. Because Dutch vampires on the East Coast are different from Spanish vampires on the West Coast, and uh, perhaps 
Scots Irish traditional vampires uh, in uh, North Carolina and Gullah vampires in South Carolina because North Carolina and South Carolina uh, vampires are completely different. So America. Uh, so that gives me a bit of space to work. And uh, whenever I fired the book off, I said, "Here, here's a book." And the publisher said, "We will do it, and we will release it for Halloween." So that's what they have done. And uh, so even uh, for the undead, America is a melting pot. Oh, very much so, because uh, as I say, uh, the cultures have influenced uh, the horrors that we experience. Um, for example, as I've already said, uh, North Carolina is different from, let's say, South Carolina, sure. because the culture is different. The Appalachian Mountains and, uh, and through uh, some of the mountains in North Carolina have been settled by Ulster Scots uh, or Scots-Irish settlers, people who came from my part of the world and from Scotland, now that the, uh, uh, and settled uh, all through the mountains, and they brought their own nightmares with them. For instance, uh, you will find... Um, Something like uh, a vampire whale. Now, not all vampires, of course, are human in uh, uh, either ship or in nature. So you have, for example, a vampire whale, which actually comes from my part of the world. We have what are called over here famine wells. Hmm. Now, these are, let's say, wells which people have drunk from during the Great Famine of um, 1846 to 1852. Uh, and if you drink from them, they will draw the good from you rather than you drawing the water in. Uh, and uh, so that's part of the culture of, uh, uh, of the Scots-Irish. Now, the subtitle of the book, uh, Bob, "True Bloody Their True Bloody History, From New York to California. When you say their true bloody history, are you suggesting some vampires may not be uh, human? In other words, those people who like to, to pretend that they're vampires, vampire cults, that there actually may be real paranormal uh, type vampires? Well, the vampire is, Richard, whatever way uh, you want to, uh, to look at it, the vampire is the embodiment of uh, some of our fears. The vampire uh, is uh, the fear of what happens to us after death, for example. Can we survive? Do we come back? And if so, in what form? And uh, if we do, how do we keep uh, how do we uh, survive? Uh, and that varies from culture to culture. Now, uh, there are people, certainly, who um, place themselves into cults or imagine themselves uh, to be blood-drinking vampires. Now, that is how they deal with the world around them. Uh, culture, but what I'm looking at in the book is a cultural background where uh, the peoples have settled in various parts of the world. And that's why I've thrown in the word history, because uh, the, uh, people have settled, and various uh, types of people have settled all over America. And that's why I chose America, because it's such a rich melting pot. Uh, people have settled all over America from various cultural backgrounds, groups of people, uh, and they 
have brought their horrors and nightmares with them, and uh, these uh, translate into American lore and um, American tradition and American folklore. Uh, to what extent um, was the vampire in North America uh, used, I guess, as as an explanation or a metaphor for the spread of disease, things like tuberculosis? That is uh, a very good point, Richard, because, uh, for example, uh, if I were to ask you the vampire capital of America, you would prob- you might say New York, you might say California. Uh, I would tend to say that it was the smallest state. It was Providence uh, or it was Rhode Island and uh, around Providence and places like that. Uh, and those were areas where disease spread quickly among col- uh, incomers and colonists and people like that. Uh, and it became interpreted. Uh, the notion of the vampire uh, serves to some extent in a cultural context as an interpretation for what's happening to the community. So if people go down, and you're quite right to identify tuberculosis, because tuberculosis uh, gives the impression of a marble, a white marble skin, uh, you may cough up blood when you sleep, so you have blood around your uh, your mouth, and uh, you uh, may f- uh, experience the sensation of a weight on your chest as your uh, lungs uh, try to cope uh, with breathing. Uh, and this gives the impression that something has been in your bedroom, that something has climbed on your chest, and that something has uh, dropped blood around your mouth or whatever. Uh, And so vampirism, particularly in the New England colonies, where disease such as tuberculosis, cholera, and places and uh, sicknesses like that were commonplace, served as a um, explanation for the spread of disease. And we have the ideas of the vampire ladies of uh, Rhode Island, uh, which uh, extend back uh, from the 1700s right up until uh, the end of the 1800s, uh, with Nelly, uh, the last one being Nellie Vaughan, uh, uh, and then Vermont and uh, in Connecticut. What kind of, uh, I mean, was it, was there any sort of similarity or parallels to the witch trials uh, that took place in terms of this paranoia and people would suspect someone of being a vampire? Yeah, uh, not so much in America, Richard, but certainly that was always the case in Europe. And um, when uh, disease struck, uh, even in, uh, in the early colonies in, in America, on the East Coast, people began to look around uh, for uh, some sort of scapegoat. People said, why is this happening to us? Is there some sort of monster? And out of European lore, they began to identify monsters uh, among themselves, whether uh, these were witches or vampires. Now, in places like New Mexico and uh, some of the southwestern states, uh, 
there is very little differentiation between witches and vampires. In fact, in these places and among the Native American peoples of Arizona, uh, witches and vampires tend to be something the same. And in order to be a vampire, you do not necessarily have to be dead. Oh, that's you interesting. You can be a witch and uh, by day, and you can be a vampire by night. All you have to do, Richard, is open up your skin, and a ball of light comes out. Now, the ball of light is the vampire. That doesn't necessarily drink blood. That drinks energy by a form of osmosis, so it can hover outside your house, and as they say, uh, it can draw the good from the house or from the family within. That's interesting, Bob. Listen, we'll take a time out. Uh, I think a lot of us are, are familiar with uh, the concept of energy vampires. Some of them, some of us may even have some in our family. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Bob Curran is on the line. Uh, we'll uh, talk about American vampires when the conspiracy show continues. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with uh, Dr. Bob Curran. He visits the Louisiana bayous, the back streets of New York City, the hills of Tennessee, the Sierras of California, the deserts of Arizona, and uh, many more locations in a bid to track down the vampire creatures that lurk there. It's all in his new book, American Vampires, Their True Bloody History from New York to California, just in time for Christmas. You've all got a goth uh, who's you know expecting something under the tree this year. <laughs> so uh, there you go. So we're talking about, this is fascinating. I didn't realize that... That, um, uh, according to the lore, even if you're not dead, you could be a vampire. And you were describing uh, a witch. They would open up their skin uh, yeah. and let out this ball of energy. And that ball of energy was a vampire. That's true, because not all, all, all vampires are human. But uh, they can actually draw, uh, even in human form, uh, it was thought among, uh, let's say, the Navajo, that uh, they could draw energy from uh, people with whom they were sitting or with whom they were eating or with whom they were working. Uh, and maybe, Richard, you have experienced people, um, the concept uh, of energy vampires is well known, but maybe you have experienced people with whom you are working uh, who left you incredibly tired and um, listless. Oh, yes. Yeah, like, uh, now, I would say these people are very, uh, I couldn't say these people are very boring, but um, there was a belief among certain people that uh, these people could, even almost unconsciously, draw the energy from you and uh, reinvigorate themselves, if you wanted. And uh, certainly this was part of uh, witchcraft in the Southwest and um, among uh, some of the Native American peoples. Um, where vampires went about and drew a leeched off uh, other members of their community or people whom they encountered. 
Now, it's interesting, when uh, going back to um, a point we made earlier on how the vampire in Eastern Europe has been associated with noblemen, part of that was sort of transplanted in America, too. You talk about in Massachusetts how the vampire is associated with class and social status. Tell me more about that. Absolutely. Um, perhaps not in the question of nobility, as we, as we think uh, of in Eastern Europe, but perhaps uh, in a, a, a division between those who have and those who may have less. For example, in Cape Ann, uh, on the Massachusetts uh, coastline, as you quite rightly say, uh, near the settlement of Gloucester, uh, there was uh, an element um, uh, or a settlement which was known as Dogtown. Uh, now, the name Dogtown uh, appears in, in a number of small settlements all over the West and, uh, and all in a sort of deprecatory fashion. And this was the case in Cape Ann, where uh, there were rather colourful and eccentric people. Many were the widows of uh, Gloucester fishermen uh, who had died at sea. Others were people who had fallen on hard times. And uh, the community was divided simply between the people in Gloucester, the rich merchants of Gloucester, if you like, down down in in, in the town, and Dogtown, which was up on the heights, which was full of, as it was thought, 'er ne'er-do-wells and um, vagabonds and people who were of lesser social status than those. And um, there were uh, people, uh, and they're mentioned in the book, who had uh, from time to time uh, very uh, strange-looking teeth, very long teeth, and uh, it it was simply a physical characteristic. But they became acquainted with uh, blood drinkers that... uh, um, up in Dogtown, there was nothing but witchcraft, and, and the old women, and some of the old women survived by telling fortunes. Some of them uh, survived uh, by uh, giving out love charms and stuff like that. So, uh, Dogtown, because of its low social status, became equated with witchcraft and with evil doing and with uh, people with long teeth, and there were several uh, of them because uh, there was a rather eccentric dentist up there who pulled uh, uh, Captain John Morgan Stanley, uh, who uh, pulled teeth uh, very strangely. Um, and uh, they became acquainted with vampires, and it was thought that uh, some of them travelled about at night uh, in the guise of bats and the birds, and drank from the, the uh, decent, upstanding, uh, socially better off people in Gloucester and around the Cape uh, and Penin- uh, Headland. That's why Governor so, Romney. That's why Governor Romney looked so pale during the campaign. You may know that. I may know that, but I couldn't possibly come. <laughs> Let me, t- Bob. Let's take a time out. We'll come back. Uh, more questions for Bob Curran as we discuss American vampires here in the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 
416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario 1-866-740-4740 We're back for a few minutes uh, with Bob Curran. The book is American Vampires and uh, it's their true bloody history from New York to California. Uh, you know, you're um, in describing those people that were accused of uh, of being vampires. It obviously leads to the the whole discussion, uh, the idea of the vampire um, based on the concept of difference. So, if an, an outsider, for example, would would be more inclined, I guess, to be in other parts of the country, perhaps considered or, or accused of being a vampire. Is that true? Did it play off on on ethnic differences and and uh, the outsiders? Absolutely. Uh, not only uh, in America, Richard, but also elsewhere. Uh, the vampire became almost the embodiment of something which was uh, created difficulties in the community. We, we talked earlier about disease coming through places like uh, Rhode Island, uh, through Massachusetts, through Vermont. Uh, and people looked around for, uh, for a reason for that and, more importantly, somebody to blame for that, which by uh, explaining it, they could do something about it. So you're quite right. Uh, the uh, outsider becomes uh, uh, the scapegoat. For instance, uh, taking a European um, uh, example, in Albania, uh, the uh, anyone who has even eaten Turkish food can become a vampire because the Turks uh, occupied Albania during the time of the Ottoman Empire uh, and were hated. So anyone who has relations with a Turk who has eaten Turkish food, uh, who has washed in the same water as a Turk or something, will become a vampire. So, uh, uh, and if you look at a famous book like Dracula, you will see all the difficulties which faced a community. Uh, for instance, uh, Stoker being an Irishman, uh, we're looking at the difficulties which faced the Irish community in the late 1800s, the, the idea of nobility, which is where we get the idea of the nobles because there was uh, differences between uh, the working class and the nobility of the time. Uh, you have um, the land question in Ireland because uh, Dracula had to sleep in his own earth and uh, uh, Ireland at the time was undergoing difficulties with uh, the ownership of land, Irish land for Irish people um, and you had the difficulties with women and uh, uh, dare I say Americans so you find all those in, in a book like Dracula I read Dracula as an Irish novel rather than as a horror novel, and you'll get a, you'll get another layer of it. So uh, the vampire becomes the embodiment of the difficulties of a community wherever they are. Uh, America had many scattered communities, had many diverse communities, and the vampires became scattered and became diverse in nature. So what do you make, uh, uh, Bob, uh, studying this this 
social phenomena, the evolution of the vampire, and how it's now being portrayed in Hollywood. It, initially, of course, we had vampires that were associated with disease, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and 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 pure evil. Obviously, I mean, Dracula was, although there was a you know a, a sort of a romantic component to it, but but yeah. mainly it was he was an evil entity. And now Hollywood has turned this on its. Everyone, you know, young girls now, they want to date vampires. What do you make That's of this? Right. And, and uh, young uh, men want to dress up as vampires and uh, pale their faces, if you like, and become... Uh, it becomes almost a romantic ideal. It becomes a notion uh, of... Because there is, uh, as well as that, and we haven't touched on this, Richard, there is also an erotic component in that. And this uh, may translate itself into the modern world, where young girls are very good-looking and our vampires are, and young men are very good-looking and uh, are, are vampires. And so the watered-down erotic component, which uh, it certainly is in Dracula, because uh, if you think of it, Richard, uh, no vampire would uh, actually kiss you on the neck and bite into your jugular vein, because if they did, they would make one heck of a mess, <laughs> and uh, you would die instantly, because the, that, that's a main artery right, right. Uh, that, that you're biting into. But it gives, uh, through Hollywood, the idea of the erotic component, the, the, the wonderful kiss which uh, women fall immediately under the spell of the vampire or whatever in, in, in an erotic way. So uh, you have that component as well. Uh, and I think this is now coming to the fore albeit in a slightly watered down where uh, yeah, I haven't seen any of the Twilight films or my daughter goes to them religiously but um, uh, young I'm told that uh, young women fall under the spell of some uh, uh, acne young hunk um, uh, and uh, this uh, is translated into some form of teenage angst. So uh, it's now coming almost, um, this element is now coming almost to the fore uh, in um, vampire fiction and films. Well, I, I, granted, there was there were vestiges of that in in even Bram Stoker's Dracula. But but how, what does that say about a society that we now romanticize, uh, dare I say, even um, a worship uh, these? If you're a young girl, these these vampire characters in Hollywood films. What does that say about us as a society? Because I personally find it a little disturbing. I find it disturbing myself, and I, and I think actually, Richard, it takes away from uh, the uh, the core of the vampire myth. Uh, the vampire myth is made up of a whole number of elements, and we, and we have talked about some of them. Uh, firstly, it, ex- uh, it seeks to explain uh, wh- why certain things are happening. It, ser- uh, it uh, serves to objectify, because then you can say... This is what's happening. Uh, this is what's causing it. Therefore, uh, we can do something about it. Uh, uh, and the vampire, though, you can go to the cemetery, as is, uh, if you're reading the book in New England, they did and dig up uh, the corpses and pour vinegar into uh, the cavity of their heart. Um, 
sort of objectifies. It also unites the community together against that. But there are other elements, as we've talked about some of them, of difficulty within the community, things like that, and such as social status, social class, things like that. And as I say, what is now happening is that one element, which is, I suppose, to appeal to young boys and young girls, has been taken out of that and has been almost amplified, if you like, through the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, through the Twilight films, and I believe there are other books coming out along those lines. So they're concentrating on one aspect, but the vampire as a whole is a much, much more complex entity. Uh, it reflects also, and we have uh, we've talked about this, the cultural values of a community. Uh, and this is what I've been trying to do in the book. I'm trying to get the vampire back to its core values and back to basics. Well, and yeah, I think you've done that quite nicely in American Vampires, uh, which it's complete with uh, some pretty... Uh, well, some of the vampire illustrations in here are, some of these vampires are quite attractive, but for the most part, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're suitably hideous. <laughs> well, we, we had talked about it. Ian, uh, once again, it's Ian Daniels and Ian and I are old friends, and we had talked about it, um, uh, uh, and uh, he said, well, uh, what do you think of vampires? And Because uh, he's been drawing a lot of uh, very uh, fairy-like women. I, he, he did some of the other books on, on fairies, and I said, let's keep them hideous, uh, because they were terrifying. Remember... Uh, Richard, that you have settlers in uh, a new place in America, uh, 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 set in small communities against forests, against um, mountains, against raging floods, uh, on uh, deserts and prairies, and uh, they're trying to uh, to keep together against an unknown world. Uh, their culture binds them together, but so do their nightmares. And it's an interesting thought that the things which we find positive bind us together, but also so, so do the things which terrify us. So as a community, we come closer together because we're frightened of what might be out there. Congratulations, uh, Bob, on American Vampires, their true bloody history from New York to California. And as always, a pleasure visiting with you. And a pleasure to talk to you, Richard, and can I wish you and yours and all your listeners a very happy Christmas. And a happy Christmas to you, my friend. All right. All right, that's it for me this week on The Conspiracy Show. Great to have you aboard. Hope you'll join me next week when uh, we'll uh, talk to a filmmaker as a, uh, um, a, a shocking, uh, very controversial new documentary out called uh, American Empire. And I uh, can't wait to talk to Patria Patrick. Uh, I'll be doing the show live from L.A. And um, 
we'll be sure to uh, to run into some very interesting people out there while I'm filming some more episodes for season three of the Conspiracy Show. I will have an announcement soon when you can finally see season three. In the meantime, thanks to Tim Spreen for production. Have a good trip to uh, Japan. I'll see you when I get back. And uh, again, all of you are listening at home, Dr. Bob Curran and uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, thank you. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs>